Okay, so let's go ahead and get started in a word of prayer. Father, thanks for a beautiful day out, and thank you for this time to come out to your house to study your word and to open its pages. I pray that you would teach us by your Holy Spirit that we would understand marvelous truths from your word. In Christ's name, amen. All right, we're working through predestination election. I promise you that we are going to get through this before the millennium. Um, hopefully, we'll have one more class on this. We'll see how well we do today. And then we're going to go on to some other topics. Um, what we're doing now is we're going through the New Testament passages dealing with this issue. And the challenge, again, is to make all of the passages fit. Um, you can't take the whosoever will passages and use them to trump the chosen before the foundation of the world passages. Nor can you take the chosen before the foundation of the world and use them to trump the whosoever will. Whatever, wherever you land on this, theologically, you've got to make all the verses fit. That's part of your job as a student of scripture. And uh, I was going to just tell an interesting story on this whole thing. I remember, I don't know, many, many moons ago when I first taught Old Testament survey, I had a couple of guys in there that were from the Romanian church in Cleveland. There's a vibrant Romanian church there. And uh, two brothers, really neat guys. And uh, he, the cool thing about him, he worked at a pizza place. So every class he'd bring in like three pizzas for the class to share. You know, so he, I liked him. Um, yeah, he, got, he had a good, good pizza. And uh, we got, we, somehow in Old Testament survey, we came across this, this, uh, this topic. And uh, boy, you know, they just like to cough up their skulls. I had nothing but fights with them in the class. Not, you know what I mean by fight. Uh, they just did not like this at all. And uh, so, well, we got through Old Testament survey. And then about four years later, I was doing Thessalonians here at the church. And guess who shows up? Well, those two brothers, they show up in class. No, they bring pizza this time. And I said, uh, you know, I, I thought to my, literally, I thought to myself, I'm in for it now because the first chapter of First Thessalonians, you get into this whole election thing. Again, I said, I've had it. I'm going to have to fight these guys this whole semester. They didn't say a word. I mean, the whole class, you know, it was just like nothing. You know, we finally, when I got done with the class, though, I'm, I was teaching First Thessalonians, and I was teaching the, the first, second Thessalonians, I was teaching the uh, pastoral epistles. So between the classes, you know, we were walking down the hallway, and I taught, they were walking with me. I said, boy, I was waiting for you guys to come out of your seats on this whole election business. What went wrong? You know, what's going on here? I said, oh, we're Calvinists now. <laughs> and I said, well, what, what caused that? And I'm not, this is a quote. Oh, we read the New Testament. Literally, that's what they said. We read the Bible. In fact, we're fighting with our church now on this. So. <laughs> but it was funny because they said, oh, we just read the Bible. And, um, you know, that sounds cliche or something like that, but really that's why I landed on this is because I'm, I'm reading these passages of Scripture and I've got to explain them. And that's the, this is the only way I can explain them. It's the only way I can understand them um, for what they say. Now, We've looked at the teachings of Paul, and hopefully you've got your um, handouts now. You can go back over these passages and look them up on your own. But, but let's go on, and let's look at another um, author, Peter. We got Paul down. Let's look at Peter, and let's go to 1 Peter 1, um, chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. I've got to get my reading glasses on here so I can see what I'm looking at. 1 Peter 1. And uh, Peter writes, 
Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Who's he writing to? Temporary residents, but what kind of, what, how does he call them? Elect. elect. He said, I'm writing to the elect exiles. The exiles in the dispersion. Now, who would have been in the dispersion? Jews or Gentiles? Jews. They're in the dispersion. And he's writing to an area of Pontus, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And if you look at your ancient maps of Turkey, that's really the area of Turkey, more exactly northern Turkey area. Um, so that's where he's writing. This Galatia is probably different than the Galatia that Paul wrote to. All right, different area. But what it is, it's a province. It's a provincial area up northern Turkey. And he's writing to the Jews in the dispersion, and he calls them elect exiles. And he says they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Why are they elect? Because God in his foreknowledge, elected them. Now, we also hit on this before. We immediately said, oh, okay, that explains it now. God knew that they were going to believe, and therefore, on the basis of that, he chose them. Um, that's a prominent understanding. The problem with this is that the word there, prognosin, that's that Greek word there. I should have probably put it in English, but I didn't. See, I'm trying to make myself look smarter than I really am. <laughs> Um, prognosin um, is the word used there. Gnosin is to know. And it's not just to know in the head, it's an intimate, deep knowledge. It's not just a head knowledge. There's two words in the Greek language for knowledge. One is just a knowledge that you have, an academic kind of knowledge. Another knowledge is a deep knowledge, a, an intimate knowledge. And it's said there that God had an intimate knowledge and the actual meaning of the word is used in the Greek language and in the Greek of that day was to determine or choose beforehand to choose something it had not it did not have to do with just intellectually knowing something it had to do with choice yeah it's not just the Jew he's writing to the elected Jews that's who the letter is addressed to No, you're reading it too narrowly. He's writing, he's addressing a book to the Jews in the dispersion. And he's calling them elect. That doesn't mean they're the only elect. Okay, so I'm sorry, maybe I'm not understanding what the dispersion The dispersion is when the Jews, when, <clears throat> when Rome came, you know, when Rome came in and dispersed the Jews throughout the world. That's the diaspora, ah, the dispersion. Okay, that's what I was okay? that happened in 70 A.D., um, that's the great dispersion, but the Jews were still dispersed throughout the world. They were scattered. This is the scattered Jews, okay? All right, and it's not, he's not saying it's just the Jews that are elect. He's just saying, I'm writing to the elect Jews, all right? Yeah, that's, yeah, it's too narrow. And he's saying they're elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And the word translated foreknowledge there is to choose beforehand. Now, some might say, well, you know, I, I, I'm not convinced of that. I, I don't think that's really what it means. So if you skip down a few verses to verse 20 of this chapter, same chapter, verse 20. Um, let's read verse 18. Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, 
like that of a lamb without blemish or without spot. He was, and I have, my text says foreknown, some have foreordained, was foreordained before the foundation of the world. The KJV has foreordained in it. Alright? That's the same word. That's the same Greek word, prognosto. Alright? So what is Peter talking about here? Well, before time began, in the decree of God, what role did Christ play? We talked about this. He, he was the Word, and He was the one who would become flesh. He would be the Redeemer, right? He would be the one to die on the cross. This was not plan B from God when Adam and Eve fell. This was plan A. Before time began, what, was, what role did Christ take upon Himself in the drama of redemption? He was the redeemer. He was the one. He was the lamb that would come and be slain. Now, was he the lamb that would come and be slain because God knew that if he was given the opportunity to do that, he would do it? It was ordained that he would do that. This wasn't an iffy kind of thing. It's not like God looked down, the Father looked down and said, well, if I send my son, he, you know, he's going to die. Oh, good. He'll die on the cross and this will all work out fine. He knew it. It was ordained. Why did Christ come into the world? The Lamb of God. It was, this was an ordained thing. This was not an iffy thing. Right? This was ordained. The, the, the whole plan of redemption hinges on Jesus Christ coming and doing what the eternal decree of God said he would do, which is to be the Redeemer. And the same word that's used to describe that decision by God, that choice by God, in eternity past that Christ would be the Redeemer is the same word used to talk about our election. Do you follow what the argument here is? Anybody there? Yeah, we're here. Yeah, all right. You follow the argument. The argument is God elected us in the same way that God ordained that Christ would be the Savior of the world. It was not an iffy thing. It was not a maybe they will, maybe they won't. Oh, this is all going to work out wonderful. You know, my son is actually going to pull it off. This was ordained before time began. There's no iffiness about it. So whatever system you come up with, you've got to explain how this passage fits in to that system. Because this clearly shows that God, of his own sovereign plan and decree, and we're going to talk about the decree of God in a few minutes if we get there, his own sovereign plan and decree was that Jesus Christ would be the Savior of the world. That was not an iffy thing. That was, that was before time began. And even, and even in Acts, and I, don't, I forget the exact passage off the top of my head, but it talks about when Christ was crucified, the words used there is the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God. You crucified him, but that was determined before time began that you would crucify him. I think that's in, I think it's like Acts 4 or 5. I can't, I wish I had, the, should have had the Acts passages up here. I don't. But it's not an iffy thing. It was determined. And the only way I understand <coughs> to explain this is in the same way God determined that Christ would be the Savior of the world. This was a plan fixed by God before time began. The same way God chose those whom he would elect. Of his own sovereign choice, his own sovereign will. Um, God knew that it would happen. And we're going we're gonna to talk about that. Let's look at the Second Peter passage here. Second Peter 1. 
And um, the reason I have so many verses here is you've got to get the context to understand the passage. That's the big important thing. Second Peter, now, now, who do you think Second Peter was written to? Same like precious faith. Most Bible commentators, most, uh, most uh, Bible scholars say that most likely 2 Peter was written to the same group that 1 Peter was written to. The same group of people. All right? Is that 100% proof? No, but there's strong evidence that he wrote to the same group of people. In this take place, he calls them those who have obtained like precious faith, the believers. But it says here, um, verse 3, His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. God did not only call you, but he gave you everything you need spiritually in this life to do whatever it is that you need to do. He didn't, he didn't ration it out. God does not ration out his grace and give you just enough to make it through the day. You've got super abundant grace, super abundant resources. You have everything you need, and then some. It's, 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 we have the scarcity mentality in Christianity. And to God, there's no scarcity mentality. God gives you all the grace you need. Um, his grace is greater than all your sin. And in the passage that pastor's working through now, um, the feeding of the 4,000, when Christ fed them, he, it says they were kortatso. That's a Greek word, which means they were filled up. When he divided the loaves and the bread, these people went away. They were so full they couldn't eat another bite. He didn't give them a ration for the way home. He didn't say, well, we'll give them two pieces of bread and a fish and that'll be enough for them until they can, that'll tide them over until they get something more. Um, he fed them until they couldn't eat any more. There was no scarcity there. In fact, they picked up seven large hampers. The word there for basket is large, big hamper. He filled them up and there were seven hampers of food left over. There's no scarcity. It's saying here God has given us everything we need to face every trial. And he gives it to those who what? Those who were called according to his own glory and excellence. All right? He called them because it was for his glory. By which he has granted us, granted to us his precious and very great promises so through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through because of sinful desire. This is important. I wish I had time to exegete this whole passage. I don't. We're, good. We're flying over it, you know, at 700 miles an hour. But basically what it's saying here is that God's given you everything you need spiritually to face every challenge that you have. And he did that in order that you might become holy. I mean, that's coupled with it. There's no such thing as, yeah, you can become a Christian, just sort of quiver there and never do anything. No, you're saved to be holy. And, and God has given you everything you need to be holy. That's right, to overcome because the flesh. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue knowledge, knowledge self-control, self-control, steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. What do you do? This is not an additive kind of thing where you do one and then you work to the next. This is all of them at once. He is saying because God has given you everything you need, every resource you need spiritually to handle every situation, you need to be diligent to work out these virtues in your life. That's part of sanctification. That's part of being holy. That's part of 
the Christian disciplines. Now, he's given you the power to do that, but you have to do that. So that goes back to the question, who lives your Christian life? You and God. It's not just God, it's not just you, it's both of you. But we are called to be diligent to, and the diligent there means to work at it. It's effort, it's not, well, I'll just let God work in me. You work at it, you study, you exercise yourself to godliness to do that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, mature, yeah. completed, and yet we're not um, developed or, you know, we're still learning. It's yeah. We're fully equipped, equipped at the moment of salvation, but then there's a whole lifelong process. Yeah. God, the point that Peter's making here is that God has given his elect every resource they need to be a godly person. He didn't leave anything out. He didn't miss something. It's all there. We have to be diligent to exercise ourselves to godliness. We have to, you know, exercise the spiritual disciplines. We have to be in the word. We have to be in prayer. But it's God who's working in us to will and to do of his good favor. It's both of us that work along here together. That's part of that spiritual growth process. But Peter is saying God has given his elect everything they need. Everything you need in, in order to do that. For verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are seeing increasing spiritual um, progress in your life, that makes you fruitful, right? Yeah. That's a positive thing. That makes you fruitful. And then listen, this is what's interesting. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted, he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. If you claim to be a Christian, you don't see any spiritual virtues in your life, what is that telling you? You may not be a Christian, and if you are, what is the first thing that goes as a Christian when you fall into sin? No? You don't feel saved. You don't feel saved. Because you look at your life and say, wait a minute, I'm a Christian, I'm not supposed to be doing that. And if you look at your life and you don't see an increasing spirituality, an increasing um, uh, evidence of these spiritual virtues, it's hard to talk yourself into being a Christian. Now, may you be a Christian, of course, we're not talking about that. We're just saying, Paul and Peter's looking at this and saying, look, how do you know you're a believer? You're a believer because your life is different, you're changed, you're not the same old, same old. And we're going to talk about this in depth in a later topic. But is that not feeling saved? Can that be equated with not holding fast, like it says in No. Yeah. This is lack of assurance. This is lack of assurance. And now it says here, therefore, brothers, this is, what, this is the verse I wanted to get to, and I had to go through all these to get to it. <laughs> therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. What's he saying? Now, from the eternal perspective, God knows who are called and who are elect, doesn't he? How do you know that? We're changing. That's what Peter's saying. You be diligent, work hard, to make your calling and election sure to who? To yourself. How do I know that, and I was 
you know, I was meditating this on the way in the church today. How do I know that I'm a Christian? How do I know that? Well, you know, Alan, you probably remember when you went forward. Yeah, a lot of people go forward. They're not Christians. I know I can give you some names of people that went forward in church, and they exhibit no spiritual life at all. Um, you hang around the church. Oh, well, yeah, you know, Judas hung around for three years. That didn't make him a Christian. The reason that I know that I'm a believer is because when I look at my life, I see increasing evidence of these spiritual virtues. I have not arrived. But you know, I no longer flip people off that pull in front of me on the highway. <laughs> That's changed, all right? That's changed. That's changed. I don't even think it anymore, actually. That's changed. I see increasing virtue there. And what it's doing, it's making my eternal calling and election of God, it's, it's moving that thing from eternity, from God's perspective, it's moving it into time for me. When I see that my life is changing and different, I know that, that that's a validator to me that I was called and elect. You understand what's going on? Here are lots of comments. We'll start over there and work our way across. <laughs> Right. Um, a lot of people have that self-control and they work hard at it and you can change, but when you are really a believer, I think you... It's a changed you heart. It's a changed heart where you don't even want to do those things. Right. Or you, or you can you serve and it's, it's not tiring. It's not something that you feel like, when I'm doing it, I can't give any more life. Yeah. You want to do this. Not even just that part, but in your thinking. Yes. Your thinking, my thinking is different. Yeah. Goodness with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with endurance, endurance with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, yep. and brotherly affection with love. So that is also indescriptible what you're mm -hmm. And what Peter's saying is that your calling an election to you is validated when you look at your life and you see increasing spiritual virtues. And if you don't see increasing spiritual virtues, then the assurance of your salvation is gone. And even though you may be a Christian, you don't feel it. You don't see it. You don't experience the joy of it because there's, there's no evidential proof of that. This is not saying I work for my salvation. All I'm saying is that my attitudes, my, the spiritual virtues validate what was already there before time began. So basically what you're saying is that this is a journey. This is a journey. Your yeah, spiritual life is a journey. Yeah. But the point is the point is you see it increasing. That's that's the big point here. It's not that I've arrived at a plateau and oh good. I made it. You know, I'm there. No, you don't. Because just as you think you make it, you the, the, it goes higher. You know? And that's what Paul says. I I, I reach forward to reach for the prize of Christ's likeness. I'm stretching out to try and win that prize. And it's like, well, you're elect, Paul. You're in, yeah, but I want to be a godly man. I want to have my, those spiritual virtues increase in my life. And as I see them increasing, as I look back over my life and I see a change to godliness in my life, that's not me pulling it off. That's the Holy Spirit pulling it off, which validates my relationship with God. Yeah, you're. I was just gonna say, yeah, you just have peace. Yeah. <laughs> you have a lot of peace, and like you say, like 
things change. Like you stop struggling so much with the Bible where it, like you thirst for it. Yeah. And like you thirst for righteousness and like you still mess up every day, you know, because we're simple people. But then it's just like your prayer life goes deeper and like like you said, the serving, like you don't serve grudgingly, you serve because there's like something in you that just says, I gotta do this. Yeah. You know? I have to be here every Sunday morning. I have to be. I don't know why. You just have to be here. This is what God's called me to do, you know. I get more out of it than you all do. I hope you know that. Um, but it's, it's just part of your spirit. And, and that's what Paul is trying to get at. Or not Paul, Peter. is trying to get here in Peter. And I, again, I wish I had time to just take this passage apart. You can do that on your own. You can go study it on your own. But what Peter's saying is that, yeah, you're elect, but your election is validated by a changed life. So this concept of, well, you know, you're in, you're saved, and it doesn't matter how you live because after all, you're in now. Wait a minute. The Bible says if you are in Christ, you're a new creation. You're not the same old, same old. We're going to talk about this in detail in a later topic and deep dive into it a little further. But, fa but suffice it to say, the New Testament has no concept of a Christian who is a Christian and not living like one, not having any fruit at all over a long period of time. It just doesn't, it's not there. Can you fall into patterns of disobedience? Well, sure. But you're not going to stay there. And uh, if you have people that stay there, then it's probably the evidence that they never were a believer in the first place. Because the Bible says that we have to have these virtues increasing in our life, a sensitivity to sin, a desire for godliness. We may not hit it, but we desire it. We want to get there. Let's look at what John says about this a little bit. Um, 1 John 4.10. And, and, and the thing, I'm, what I'm trying to do here is I'm trying to show you that when you, when you latch on to this concept of election and God's choosing, no matter where you go in the Bible, you're going to hit this thing. It's there. It's all over the place. It's, you see it. You know, I don't know if it's like you... It's like, I think Pastor said, you know, like when you buy a particular car, all of a sudden you see that car everywhere on the highway, you know. Yeah. And uh, once you understand it, you see it all over the place. 1 John 4.10, one of the... And this is love... Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sin. Who took the initiative? God always did. That's the point. And, and, and just read down through 1 John 4. God has taken the initiative. And then it says, uh, we love him because he first loved us. loved us. Why is it that I love God? Why is it that I'm sensitive to God? Because he took the initiative to love me first. He showed his love to me. And um, as a natural, and we're going to talk about this a little bit, you know, one of the problems with this is there, there's so many topics that you got to try and fit all together. You don't have time to do it all in an hour to make it all. So you got to sort of piece it and then try to put it together. Um, but we are depraved, and in depravity, no one in of their own, seeks God for who God is. We can seek God for what God gives, but not for who God is. God takes the initiative. He takes the first move. And the reason I love him is because sometime in eternity past, God chose me. In time, he called me with the effectual calling. I was born again. The light bulb went on. I saw who God is. I repented. I believed. And I love God. Mm -hmm. But he loved me first. 
most people would suggest that Paul, Paul, that John is writing this to the seven churches of Asia Minor because he was the pastor there. Um, he was the elder of those seven churches. Those are the same seven that he wrote to in the book of Revelation. He was actually the elder at Ephesus and it sort of had like a circuit kind of writing because Ephesus was near all the other churches that he wrote to. That's, that's the best understanding that he wrote to those churches. Marshall. God takes the initiative. Always, no matter where you look at it in the scripture, God takes the initiative. Jesus Christ said, I am come to seek and to save those that are lost. Who's taking the initiative there? God is, not man. The, the Bible actually says we are like sheep. We've all gone astray. What does that mean? We're all wandering out there somewhere lost. And who is the great shepherd that takes the initiative to go out and find the one lost sheep? God does. God takes the initiative. And we always see that throughout Scripture. And in here in 1 John, we love him because he first loved us and gave himself for us. Um, 2 John 1, 1. Um, hopefully, you're still going to talk about seek the Lord while you may be found. Actually, yeah, I am. Okay. <laughs> 2 John 1 1. And I, I'm just showing you how this elect thing pops up again and again and again. Oh, got to get my glasses on so I can read the text. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Um, 2 John was written evidently to a woman in one of the churches that John ministered to. And how does he describe this woman? the elect lady. Yeah. It just shows that this concept of election is not foreign to all of the writers of scripture. John 15, 16 is an interesting one. Um, the book of John. And again, look, understand please, I'm not giving you every single passage in the New Testament that has this or we'd be here till really the millennium. I'm not trying to do that. I'm trying to give you representative passages Christ is talking to his disciples here and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And appointed that you should go out and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Christ is talking to the 11 and he says, you know, you didn't choose me. It's not like you were out there and you decided one day, well, I think I'll be in a disciple of Jesus. Where was Peter and John and Andrew and all them when they were called? Fishing. Where was Matthew? He's at the tax collector. And what did Christ do? Come follow me. And why did, why did he choose Matthew of all people? His choice. 
right? Mm -hmm. His choice. And Christ is saying here, you did not choose me. You guys didn't choose me. I chose you. This wasn't something that you initiated. I initiated it. All right? And what we see there is a concept of God's choosing. God's choosing. Now, if this was the only passage in the Bible having to do with God choosing, you could say, well, it's just he, he chose them to be the 11 disciples apart from other people. But when you marry it up with everything else you see in Scripture, why is it that those 11 guys became the disciples? Because in time past, what did God ordain? That they would be the disciples. Now, did they make a choice in time? Did Peter say, yeah, I'm going to leave my net and I'm going to come follow you? Of course he did. Did Matthew say, yeah, I'm going to leave my tax booth here and I'm going to go follow Christ? Of course he did. Why did he follow Christ? Because all the events of Matthew's life, all of the circumstances, all of the things worked out to that when Christ gave the call, he wanted to respond like all of us did. And that's where this, this human perspective and divine perspective marry up. None of us are dragged into the kingdom kicking and screaming. We all came because we wanted to. But we wanted to because God so ordained the events of our lives, everything that, all our background, our circumstances, our upbringing, everything, our needs, our, our environment, to bring us to that point of we wanted to believe. Yeah, I mean, he picked 11 losers. Really? Well, the only, the only one in there, and I, I love the little ditty, the only, you know, but uh, um, Galilean, uh, there's some like the Galilean uh, talent, uh, you know, where they have the headhunter service, and, you know, it pretends like, you know, Jesus is out looking for 12 guys to help him form this new uh, movement, and uh, they go down the list of all the disciples, so, well, Peter's a loser, he doesn't know, you know, he's always shooting his mouth off, and, you know, James and John, they have too big a temper. And, you know, Matthew, you don't want him. said, really, the only guy in there that makes any sense that you choose would be Judas Iscariot. He's the only one with any qualifications to be a disciple. And that just shows the foolishness of men, right, whom we think is the one that we need in there. God says, nah, he's the loser. And who we think are the losers, they're the ones that are the winners. And that's, that's how God operates. He, he's always going to do something the way you think he's not going to do it. That's just, I think he takes delight in that. You know, he takes delight in doing it in a way that we don't, we don't understand. Let's look at Revelation 17, 8. Um, the beast that you saw, I don't have time to really exegete Revelation 17. You understand that. But I want to just hit a point here. John is saying, the beast that you saw was and is not. It's about to rise from the bottom of the pit and go into destruction. This is what I want to get to. And the dwellers on earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will marvel to see the beast. Now let me, let me skip right to the conclusion without going through all the exegesis to try and prove this. You have to take my word on it. But what's it saying there? When the Antichrist rises... Who's going to wonder after him? Who's going to follow the Antichrist? Are not written in the book of life. When was the book of life written? When was that? Before time began. However you land on this, God wrote your name down before time began in a book. And that's, that's your name. And 
That was ordained before God created a single molecule in this universe. He had your name written down in a book before the foundation of the world, before time began. You see the same thing in Revelation 13, 8. Um, Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slain. When was your name written down? Before time began. Who's going to worship the Antichrist? All those whose names are not written in the book of life. Because in God's mind, was Christ slain before the foundation of the world? Absolutely. Because it was a done deal. It was ordained. And you understand from God's perspective, everything is an eternal now anyways. Don't figure that out. You're not going to do that. So yes, it was. Um, the same thing in, in, in this book of life pops up again in Revelation 20 when it says in verse 15, And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. Who gets thrown in the lake of fire? Everyone whose name is not in that book. When was that book written? Before time began. Who's in it? The elect. It's, it's, I don't know how else to interpret it. So you see, in John's writings, this concept pops up again and again and again. Now when you look at this, um, people have tried to explain this in many different ways. And, I went out to the internet and I got this because I think this is really a, a great encapsulation of this concept here. All right? We're going to get to the yeah, what about passages here in a minute. Sammy, don't worry. We'll there's get there. A of, there's a whole bunch of them. You're going to have to talk fast. I'm going to have to talk fast. And I'm not going to get all of them, but I'm going to get some of them. I'm going to get some of the highlight ones. Um, but when you look at the Westminster, what was the Westminster Confession? Well, this was a confession put together by the church from basically the Reformed Sovereignty of God perspective. And they tried to explain all of these different theological things. It's actually a very good, um, a very good confession. In one of the, their sections on election, um, this is how they explain this whole concept of God's eternal decree. They talk about God's eternal decree. We've tossed that around, the decree of God. The idea of the decree of God is his plan before time began. When God created the universe, he did not create it saying, gee, I wonder how this thing's going to work out. He knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, and it talks about this decree, and it says, God, from all eternity, did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will. Why did God do anything? He wanted to. It was his own well, it was uncoerced by any other agency because there was no other agency to influence it, right? If God is all there is before time began, who can influence God's decision? God. <laughs> There's nobody else. There's no other God out there that could give him counsel. It, by his own free will, freely and unchangeably. That, that's a nasty word people don't like. What does it mean unchangeably? What God ordained in eternity past in his decree will all work out. God doesn't change his mind along the way. He's not adapting depending on what's going on. And even what appears to be an adaptation is really God ordaining that he would do that. 
unchangeably ordained whatever comes to pass. Yet so. Now, if you just stop there, what do you, what do you think it's saying? If you just stop at that, that statement, what inference can you pull out of that? Bad inferences can you pull out of that? If God did freely ordain all that would come to pass, what can you accuse God of doing? Making sin, right? He created sin. I mean, if he ordained it, he had to create it, right? If you just stop at that level, if you stop at that point, we talked about this a little bit in the class, if you just stop there, then you've got to make God the author of sin. But the Bible says he's not the author of sin, so you've got a problem there. But if you just stop there, you say, well, God created sin. This is where the yet so comes in. Yet so, as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures. So what they're saying is, yeah, did God ordain unchangeably all that would come to pass? Yes, he did. But in doing so, he did not, one, create sin. And two, he doesn't do any violence to the will of the creature. In other words, he doesn't override violently your will. That's the mystery. That's where you're not going to figure this out. You're just going to have to go with it. Did God ordain that Alan Schaefer would be one of his? Yes, he wrote my name down in the book of life before the world began. But in time, he wooed me. He drew me to himself. The parents I was born to, the church I went to, the background of my life, my temperament, everything funneled in to that point when at eight years old, I chose him. I was not dragged in there unwillingly. I wanted to believe. And that's what it's saying here. God did not do... I don't feel that God violated my will. I wanted to believe. He drew me to himself. And there is a mysterious component there that even when you look at all of these passages, you've got to just let it be there. And say, I'm not going to fully explain that. And that's okay because he's God, you're not. But God doesn't violate the will of the creature. Because that's one of the great arguments. Well, if you believe in election, that means you're saying God violates the will. There's, he's going to violate your free will. We're going to talk about free will in a minute. The answer is no, he's not going to violate. He's going to woo you to himself to the such that you want to believe. And that's the question I asked all of you in here, those of you who are Christians. Did you want to believe? Yeah. Sure you did. <laughs> you were drawn to him. And when you became a Christian, you wanted that more than anything. But why did you want that? Because he first loved you. And he drew you to himself. And that's what it says in John 6. The Father, no man can come to the Father unless the Spirit draws him to the Father. I don't know how that all works out. I'm telling you, I don't. I can't explain it any better than that. And it says here, nor is the liberty of, or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. What does that mean? Even the bad things, even the things that we look at and see that don't make any sense, God is using to fulfill his eternal decree. Romans 8, 28, even the bad things that happen to the elect, what is God doing? He's overriding them for our own eternal benefit. God is fully in charge. He's not lost control of the universe. He's fully in charge of all that goes on. Um, actually, um, six years ago, he pulled, the, he pulled the, the rug off from underneath my feet. I was trying to help a girl that had, uh, she's bipolar, she's living in our house. And she, I was trying to help her because of all the crap that I went through. 
And my dad told me that there wasn't nothing wrong with me. I told her, I told him, tell her, tell him about the shock treatments and all the medication and, and all the day hospitals that I've been in. And this, he was eating breakfast and the spoon dropped from his mouth and he started bowling his eyes out and he started asking me to forgive him and I'm going, what the heck did I do now? You know, and he says, you're a survivor of Munchausen by proxy. I just found this out six years ago. And the same thing that I did when I was seven, when my little brother was born, that should have been in all dang hospitals, I ran to the church. So six years ago when I found this out, I did the same thing then. I ran to this church and I told anybody that would believe me, that would that would listen to me, what was going on. And I know I did a lot of weird things, but I was trying to, to get people's attention. But then he caught my attention because just two and a half months ago, I was walking with a walker and I had three MRIs and I can't, the doctors can't even figure out what the heck's going on. And now I can run. So yeah, he does do exactly what you're saying he does. He, and then my dad told me that there was absolutely nothing wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And it's, it just brings tears to my eyes. And see, this is what this is what this other, let's go back here, saying. It's not saying bad things happen. Bad things do happen. And God's going to hold people responsible for the evil that they do. But God overrides it all for his own eternal purpose. Were the 11 brothers of Joseph culpable for selling him into slavery? Absolutely. They did sin. But what did Joseph say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. And that, folks, if there's anything you can latch on to as a believer, latch on to this. God's not going to bring anything in your life that's going to destroy you. Everything is going to work out for his eternal glory. And when you look back over your life, and you may not, this is the thing, you may not see it in this life. It may wait for the next till you see how God worked all this out. But you're going to be wondrously amazed at what he has done. He, 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 he works it all out. That's his promise. And even those evil, wicked, vile things that happen to us that maybe people have sinned grievously against us, God can work out for his eternal purpose. And, and we can take comfort in that. Doesn't let them off the hook for those who did it, but we can gain comfort knowing that God is there for us. Westminster Catechism, what's that? That's the shorter, this is their shorter and longer catechism. This is used in many of the Reformed churches to teach the doctrine of the church, and there's a couple of questions. I, what I wanted is I wanted to bring these out to show you that this, is, this has been established many, for many years, and I think it does a good job answering some of these questions. Um, that's why we bring it out here. Question 13, what has God especially decreed concerning angels and men? Let's talk about the decree of God. What, so the question, it's a question and answer format, any of those who've been from the Reformed Persuasion. It's a Q&A format, and you would ask, well, what is God especially agreed concerning angels and men? And then the students would respond with this answer. God by an eternal and immutable decree. What does that mean? It was eternal in the sense before time began, immutable in that it won't change. Out of his mere love, for the praise of his glorious, glorious grace, to be manifested in time. In other words, why did God do it? Because of his love and because he wanted to display his grace. That's why he did it has elected some angels to glory and in Christ has chosen some men to eternal life. 
for his own glory, for his own love, God chose some angels, and we call these the elect angels, chose some angels to be elect. He chose some men to eternal life. And the means thereof, what's that? Not only did he choose that they would be saved, but he chose the means whereby that would work out in time. That's the predestination. That's, that's the path of your life that brings you wherever you, however it winds around, that brings you to that point where you say, I want to believe. So that's a clue. Yes. Pardon? That's a clue to us. A clue? Yes, because we're of the means to... Yeah, God not only ordained your salvation, he ordained the means. Why were you born in America at the time you were born into? Why did you go to the church you were born? Why did you have the parents that you had? Why... That's all part of God's, you know, God didn't just, you know, roll the dice and say, well, you know, uh, Schaefer's going to be born sometime and, you know, we'll see where he winds up. We'll see when he was born. God knew that, he, he numbered my days, right? He, he told Jeremiah, I, I knew you before you were born, Ezekiel, Paul. These guys were known before they were born. God ordained their, their, their birth, their life. And there, again, there's a mystery to that that we don't, we don't, can't sort out. But God chose that, yeah. Is that part of God's sovereignty? Yes. Some people struggled hugely with when they had a chaotic, painful background. Yeah, because we are born into a world that has fallen with a lot of fallen sinners that do a lot of bad things. Yeah. All right? Um, and sometimes we're victims of that. But for the elect of God, he works all of that for his own sovereign glory. But it's for our maturity. And, and for our, for his, yeah. And it says here, he also ordained the means thereof, and also according to his sovereign power and the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds favor as he pleases. What does that sound like? Romans 8, 9, right? I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's his own will. He has the right to dispense it as he sees fit. Has passed by. And that's, this, is the con this is the thing to understand. What did God do to the non-elect? He just passed by them. It's not like he said, I'm ordaining that they go to hell. That's not the way it works. God passed by them. That's the way to understand it. He passed by and he chose those whom he would choose. It's, it's the Romans 9 passage here. What was Pharaoh? He was a vessel unto dishonor. He was there to display God's power. Did Pharaoh choose the choices he made? Absolutely he did. God just did not interfere. God let him do what he would naturally be inclined to do. He did not interfere in Pharaoh's choices. And what did Pharaoh do? He did what all sinners will do. They will reject God. They will stick it in the face of God. They will not believe to the praise of the glory of his justice. The idea is everything works out for God's glory. For those of us who are redeemed, and we're going to look at this in, in Ephesians 2, we are trophies. We are eternal trophies of God's grace. For those who are not redeemed and in hell, what are they? They are eternal examples of God's justice and wrath. And in both cases, God gets the glory. I don't know how else to explain it better. Here's another one. This is the effectual calling we talked about a little bit. What is effectual calling? What is that? What's the general call? The general call is whosoever will may come, right? Whoever wants to believe can believe. That's the John 3.16 in the end zone. That's Dave's point. I like that. The John 
whosoever will, that's the general call. Anybody can see that, but whether you're a Calvinist or not a Calvinist, will everybody who see that believe? Absolutely not. It's, it doesn't make it a non-true statement. It's just that not everybody's going to believe. The argument is over who will and who won't. And it comes back to this effectual call. Effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his, again, where's the initiative come from? It comes from God. Out of his free and special love to the elect and from nothing in them, moving him thereunto. It's not because they did anything. It's not because God likes them better. It's just out of his own sovereign will and love and for his own purpose, chose them. He does in his accepted time, what does that mean? When the time is right, invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit. This is the moment of salvation. This is when you believe. That was the effectual call. What did God do? God drew at the right time. God drew. How many of you heard the gospel again and again and again before you believed? And what did, how, did it make any sense? Then what happened? All of a sudden the light bulb goes on. And all of a sudden it's like, I got it. That's, that's the effectual call here. That's, that's when you're drawn to him and you believe. Savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills. What does that mean? God gives you the ability to believe, but you believe because you want to believe, and there's a mystery there that you let go. Did you become a Christian because God elected you? Yes. Did you become a Christian because you chose to believe? Yes. <laughs> go with it. So that they, although in themselves dead in sin, and hereby made willing and able to freely answer his call. That's the idea. Even though you were dead in sin, God enabled you to willingly and freely accept the call to salvation. He drew you to himself. He chose you. And to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. Again, the, the, the concept here in, in these two questions is, yes, you may be elect, but God drew you to himself such that when that time came, the effectual call, you wanted to believe. You wanted salvation. Yes? What do you think about the illustration of as you're approaching the gates of eternity and at this time? Yeah. Whoever will may come. And then when you pass through the gate and you look back on the inside of the gate, it says chosen before yeah. salvation. And, and, and admittedly, when we're all done with this topic, and we are going to get through it, believe me, <laughs> when we're done with this topic, you're going to still say, yeah, but I, I do. You're going to have to let it lay. And maybe when you get to heaven, you can ask God, you know, <laughs> would you please sort this out for me? And what he'll say, well, you know, I chose you because I really wanted to. And that's, that's the only answer you're going to get, so just go away. <laughs> um, he'll say that in a nice way, I guess. Or probably when you get there, it's not going to matter, right? You're not going to ask that question. It's not going to matter. Marshall, you're going to... All right. But what about... Sammy's happy now. Look at that smile on her face. I only got some of them because I couldn't put all of them up there. You say, yeah, but what about? Yeah, but what about? Well, let's look at the, 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 one of the naughtiest ones here, First Peter or 2 Peter 3, 1 through 18. 2 Peter 3, 1 through 18. What have I, what, first of all, before, we, before I just go in, let me just recapitulate where, where, what I'm trying to say here. 
I'm trying to say what the Bible says is that Alan Schaefer, I'm using me as an example, I was chosen in him before the foundation of the world. God wrote my name down in the book of life. And God ordained not only that I would be glorified, Romans 8, but he ordained the means whereby that glorification would take place. He ordained the moment of my birth. He ordained the parents I would belong to. He ordained the part of the world that I would be born into. He ordained the events of my life. He knew all of that before time began. And he worked all of that to bring me to that point when I was eight years old that the light bulb went on. I understood the gospel and I believed. And I believed because I wanted that. I wanted forgiveness for my sin. I wanted salvation. I wanted that. He did not violate my will. He did not drag me into the kingdom against my will. He so moved my will that I wanted to believe. But he is the one that moved my will to bring me to the point that I could believe because I was dead in my sin. And left to myself, I would never understand. He had to give me light. had to give me understanding. He had to give me the faith to believe, as it says in Ephesians 2. But I wanted to believe. And then some say, yeah, but what about this, this concept that God's not willing that anybody should perish? I mean, if he's not willing that any should perish, then why, why, how can you say that he chose those? Because it would seem to me if he was willing that none should perish, he could have chosen all of them. Right? He could have chosen everybody. Why didn't he? Why didn't he choose everybody? And Peter talks about this. Now, now to understand... 1 Peter 3, 8, and that should be 8, not 18, I think. Well, now, let's just work down through the passage. To understand the 3, 9 passage, which is, uh, God is not willing that any should perish, you have to understand the first eight verses of the passage. This now is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. Wait a minute. Who did he write the first letter to? The elect in the dis dispersion. So now this is the second letter he's writing to them. So it's the same group of people he's writing to, all right? And both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. I'm writing to stir up your memory so that you remember what you've been taught. Okay, I'm stirring up your memory. I want you to remember. I'm, I'm reinforcing what you already know. Knowing this first, that Scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. What did the early church believe Christ would do at any time? Come. And as time dragged on, what did you have? Scoffers. Where is he? Where is he? Do we have scoffers today? Yeah, turn on History Channel, Discovery Channel, TV, pick on any, pick on any of them. Where is he? He hasn't come yet. You say he's coming back. Where is he? Where's he at? You say he's going to be here. Yeah. Why is he taking so long? And intimated in that is what? He's not coming back. You guys, you're full of it. Or he comes back when he comes back in your mind as you are, have some funky connection with him. That's the neo, that's a liberal thing. They're going to be scoffers. We have scoffers today, right? We're in the last days. And it says here, um, and what are they saying? Well, everything, he's not coming back because he's not come back. In fact, everything's just going on the way it's always 
going on. For they deliberately overlooked this fact. Ah, what do you mean by deliberately? Don't bother me with the facts. I'm going to believe this. Don't confuse me with the evidence. And what is it that they are confused about? They deliberately over this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. What do all modern scientists categorically refuse to believe? The flood and creation. Both of them. In spite of the evidence. I walk to the Grand Canyon and I'm looking and say, wow, there was a big flood here. Oh, no, this was like millions of years of evolution at 250. You know, where do you get that? Well, you're willingly ignorant. You refuse to believe what your eyes are seeing. You don't believe. It's, it's, it's unbelief is a refusal to believe the evidence. You refuse to believe it. And he's saying these scoffers are willingly ignorant. Why are they willingly ignorant? Because if God created the world, you have a God. And if you have a God, I'm in trouble. I don't like that idea, so I'm going to not have a God. One of the Huxley guys, I forget where all this... Huxley or one of them, said, uh, I have to believe in evolution because if I don't, I have to believe in God and I don't want to go there. I don't want to believe that. And he said, by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. So he's saying, what are people saying? Well, where is he? He's not here yet. You're telling me that Jesus is coming back? Why isn't he here? Everything's been going along as it's always been going along. And he said, well, you're willing to ignorant of the flood and of creation. You don't want to believe that. And then he answers, why is it? Why is it that Jesus has not come back? Why has he not come back right now? He gives you a couple answers. He said, don't overlook this fact, one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. Most important key to biblical understanding is what? context. The second most important is context and the third most important is context. So what is he saying here? He's saying why is it that the scoffers come along and say that? Well they refuse to believe. But the real reason folks, understand this, one day with the Lord is a thousand years and a thousand years as a day. What is he saying there? Contextually what is he trying to convey? God's schedule is not your schedule. God's timing is not your timing. This is not a mathematical construct to determine end-time prophecies equating days to a thousand years as some people write and try to make. That's not what... This is a figure of speech. This is a figure of speech. He's saying that God's schedule is not our schedule. Is God coming back? Yeah, but he's not coming back to make you feel good. And he's not going to come back on your schedule. He's going to come back on the schedule that he has ordained that he was going to come back on. And then he says this, and this is where we want to get to the nine, verse 9. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises. Some count slowness. Now, contextually, what is he saying? Some people say he's late, but he's not late. Right. You say he's late. But he's not late, and he's not late because he is procrastinating. He's not late because he's not going to gotten around to it. You know, he's too busy doing something else. God has a perfect schedule, perfect timing, and just because you think he's late, he's not late. Was Jesus ever late? He was always on time, wasn't he? You say, wait a minute, he got he got the Lazarus late. No, he got the Lazarus right on time. 
because when he got there right on time, what did he do? He raised Lazarus from the dead. And when he got to the little girl late, our coronary, it's too late, she's dead. He says, I'm never late. He raised her from the dead. Jesus is never late. God is never late. His timing is just on the money. We don't, we, we, we want to pull out our schedule and we want to say, okay, I think God should come back here. I'm praying for something. I think God should answer it uh, October 13th at 2 o'clock. No, it doesn't operate that way. God does it on his time. And what's he saying here? His lateness is not because he is procrastinating, because he's taking his time. He's right on schedule. And why is he on schedule? But it's patient toward you. Who's the you there? The elect. Not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why is God, why is Christ delaying his second coming? Who? The elect. The elect. But he's not willing he's for not any willing. to perish. Right. Any of the who? Who is he talking to? He's talking about the elect, but he's talking about anybody. No. Because anybody can't accept him. He's talking to the elect. <laughs> he's talking to that. Can you be elect and not yet saved? Yes. He is waiting for all the elect to come to salvation. He is waiting for them. God's delaying his second coming. Christ is delaying his second coming. So all of those whose names are written in the book of life, all those who are the elect, are going to come to repentance. Then as far as we know, we're all elect, but we all wouldn't necessarily be saved. Right, right. The point here, this is seeing it from God's perspective. And, so all the, they're, they're, and the willingness there, God... See, if you say, well, God is not willing that any should perish, you want to go the other explanation. Number one, you've got to violate the context of the passage because he's talking to the elect. You know, go, go work it out. He's talking about the elect here. The second thing is say, well, if God is not willing to perish, why didn't you save them all, right? I mean, he's powerful, he's omnipotent, he's, he can do anything he wants. Because he only saves those who ask for it. But if he was willing, if he was willing in the salvific sense, he could have saved them all. But, he's, but that's atomic. It, it, it's puppet saving. It sounds, it sounds like it, but it isn't. And that's, that's really what the, um, this prior slide was trying to get to. Like... Am I a puppet? Am I a, was I a puppet when I was saved? No. no. I wanted to believe. I really did. I didn't feel like I was a puppet. But God drew me to himself. So you're saved by our choice. And, and there's, there's a point where, where that choice, where God's sovereign election and my choice come together, that is really fuzzy. And I got to allow the fuzz to be there. You think you don't have fuzz, but you do have fuzz. The point, here's, here's the problem. This is, the only, this is why I bring this one out. Go back and study this passage. Go, go dig through it. When he's saying, I'm not willing that any should perish, well, who's the any he's talking to? Is it anybody in general? Is it every person? He's not willing that, so he's just going to keep delaying and delaying and delaying? No, he's going to delay until who comes to salvation, the elect. That's who he's talking to. That's the audience that he's talking to. That's, that's my argument. I know. <laughs> now, there's some other passages we're going to look at, the whosoever will passages. I'm just looking at this one passage here and say that, that there is an explanation consistent with God's sovereignty, consistent with the view of God's election, 
that this passage fits. Understand what I'm trying to get at? It, you know, theoretically, could you still be right? Yes. But I don't think that's the view that this passage is trying to bring out. Is everybody following this? Do you understand what? Well, if we weren't, if we weren't elect, we wouldn't be here at all. Would we? No, we wouldn't. What I'm saying is that this passage fits in with the concept of election and God's sovereign grace that is consistent with the passage itself. All right? And what Peter is saying is God's delaying his coming because all the elect have not yet been saved. No. That's error. That's error. Elect is those who really believe. The general call is still valid. The problem is with the general call, unless God does a work in the heart of the person, they're not going to respond to it. They're not going to believe. They're not going to be drawn. They, they don't want it. I believe We're out of time. so cocky, hard-hearted, and narcissistic that no matter how hard God works at their heart, they have closed hearts. And, and there are some that are. You're right. Absolutely right. There are some that are so settled in their unbelief that they will not believe. I, I agree with that. Yeah. 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 And, and one thing, and, and we have to, we, we are out of time, we have to stop with this, but, but one thing I, I do want to stress here, those who do not take the, so, the, 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 the side or the viewpoint that I'm trying to say the Bible says, and rather take, as Sammy understands, you're not heretics. All right? You're not a heretic, all right? You've got to work through this. And you're going to have to make all these passages fit. And that's what I've tried to do. I've tried to make them all fit. Hopefully next week we'll get through the rest of this. Um, but uh, go back and ponder these passages. Look at them. Study them on your own. We're, we're out of time. Father, thanks for this day and for your, your Holy Spirit that has taught us. And This is a very difficult topic to get our heads around, but I pray that you would just grant us your Holy Spirit that we may study your word, be students of your word, and we may be diligent to study the truth that we would all know what it would say and not, not what we want it to say. We just thank you for this time in Christ's name. Amen.